Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup, an hour with creatives in the city's art dimension where we'll worry if AI might unleash a new monster in our midst, visit artists exhibiting as they work and hear about the art that will come to you at home. In this edition, we look at Mary Shelley's 1818 edition of Frankenstein with Dr Patricia Farrer and discover a comparable creature that modern technology might release in the form of AI. We drop in on Fenditton Gallery's Hannah Mumby and discover how you get a piece of art that really reflects you. We hear from Cambridge alumni and playwright Catherine Moore about her new play Farm Hall, which is coming to the Arts Theatre in September, which picks up an intriguing strand of the Oppenheimer story, which happened close by in Godmanchester. And we visit the artists of Open Studios and meet painter Denise Spaulding, Potter Joy Voisey and jewellery maker Joss Stelling. When it rains heavily and thunderstorms bring lightning, there's often a chill of danger and a feeling that nature is a little more powerful than we give it credit for. It also arouses the appeal of sitting at home and reading a good novel that perhaps looks at the darker side of life. What better book to pick than Mary Shelley's 1818 edition of Frankenstein for sheer gothic thrill and weirdness as a literary treasure trove of imaginative ideas from an author of wonderful complexity? Emeritus Fellow of Clare College, Cambridge, Patricia Farrer, writes about the history of science and has recently written an article in Engelsberg Ideas on Victor Frankenstein's bad habits and she speculates how AI might produce a new and willful being in the current era that's equally uncontrollable. She poured me a large cup of tea and drew the curtains so that we could discuss Shelley's creation as rain lashed the window panes outside. He is not a monster. Shelley only uses that word right at the very end of the book. One of the points of the book is that he is a creature, he is born innocent, and it's only by contact with the human world that he becomes corrupted and he becomes evil and he turns into a monstrous being. It's only by the very end that he becomes a monster. Okay, It's a very, very important distinction because part of the point of the book is that he becomes evil because he's exposed to humanity. And um, he says, Did I request thee from thy clay to mould me a man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Um, and, uh, of course, he's saying, but why am I here? Why am I? Why am I here? Why did you desert me for two years after he created the the creature? Uh, Frankenstein disappeared because he was so disturbed. He was made ill by the, contemplating what he'd done. He, so this poor innocent creature is out in the wilderness trying to fend for himself. Now you've recently written an article published in Engelsberg Ideas on Victor Frankenstein's bad habits. What's that about? That is about how we can still learn from Frankenstein. One of the marvellous things about that book is that it's completely ambiguous. She never even specifies that it's electricity that fuses the bits of body together to put life into the creature. So it can be endlessly reinterpreted for any situation. So if we're looking at some of the disasters that are afflicting us today, we can think about global warming, we can think about genetic engineering, and of course the hot 
topic of the moment is AI. Well, when we originally made computers, we told them what to do, we programmed them. The computers were incapable of thinking independently. And gradually, AI is getting, as its name suggests, more and more and more intelligent. And one of the big fears that's being touted is that, rather like the creature in Frankenstein's book, AI might turn on us and exterminate the people who created it in the first place. Um, I mean, obviously, everyone's terrified that AI is going to um, um, uh, mean that they're going to have their authorship of things removed and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and there's a lot of stri- uh, there's always strikes going on in America and what have you with the actors. Um, so it is frightening to people, isn't it? I mean, p- people do feel that that um, they will there basically will be another being in the room. Yes, and you have no way of knowing in which direction an AI device is going to go. That's one of the strengths of an AI device, is that it can do things human beings can't do. But it's also one of the great drawbacks. You can't predict its actions. Now, um, Shelley um, uh, was um, very very intrigued by the whole idea of um, Pandora's box, um, which was from the tale of Prometheus, a tale about temptation and where it leads. Why was she so inspired by that? The idea of Pandora, she may well have got from her father, who who read the story of Pandora's box or Pandora's jar to her. But her book is called uh, The New Prometheus, and she was very inspired by the Greek myth... Prometheus one of the, transgressed the laws of the gods by taking fire and giving life to a lump of inert clay. At the time, electricity was a big, fashionable, scientific subject. And there's that famous saying about Benjamin Franklin who drew lightning down from the clouds. And in a sense, Franklin was sometimes said to be a Prometheus because he'd take, drawn lightning down. And the new Prometheus, Victor Frankenstein, drew lightning down and gave life to a lump of inert clay. Is Shelley making um, a criticism of the age of experimentation, electricity in particular? She, she, um, do, does, did she feel it was um, in any way kind of sacrilegious? I think one of the wonderful things about Mary Shelley's writing is that you never know exactly what she thinks. She puts forward different situations, different possibilities. She never plumps for one side or another, and that's what makes her writing so incredibly versatile that it can be adapted to any particular situation. Um, She makes it quite disquieting, really, doesn't she? I mean, she takes you into this cold wilderness at the beginning of the story. Um, she takes you into this world where th- there's a kind of feeling of, 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 um, uh, of a pathetic fallacy and, uh, and eeriness and all those other things like that. So she, she, she kind of draws you into that kind of gothic, um, you know, ghostly environment right from the very beginning. Well, she does. The book's structured in a very interesting way. It's got three different narrators. And when the book starts, we're, we're on a ship, we're sailing up to the Arctic Ocean, and uh, the sailor is writing back to his sister, reporting on all his experiences in the cold, frozen north. And then he picks up Victor Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein is adrift in a boat, and he picks him up, and Frankenstein tells him his own story. And then there's another level layer to the book. Frankenstein speaks to the creature and in in the third part of the book it's the creature himself who is the narrator so you learn three different points of view three different perspectives Um, um, what do you think she's saying about men and morality 
Um, yeah. Well, there's a, um, a very common Baconian metaphor that was um, that was often un- articulated by Humphrey Davy. Humphrey Davy was a very famous chemist, electrical expert who showed experiments at the Royal Institution. He was so charismatic, he was so popular that Albemarle Street, where the U- Royal Institution is based, became the first one-way street in London because all the carriages were piled up um, outside the door. And the language that Humphrey Davy used was very much the language of Francis Bacon from the 17th uh, century. And Francis Bacon used this very gendered language of unveiling uh, nature, of probing nature's secret recesses, of uh, discovering her secrets. And Humphrey Davy used that language as well. And a lot of that language is pretty much repeated in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So you can think of it as male natural philosophers or male scientists exploring female nature. Um, Is it also a story about what happens when a man tries to have a baby without a woman? The, the, The whole theme of the creation of life? Well, belonging to women, basically. Well, I think you can interpret it in that yeah. that way. I mm. mean, there's other ways of interpreting it, it as well. At the time, there was a big debate uh, between two schools of thoughts about what is the meaning of life. And one school of thought, the traditional one, said life has to be infused, some spark. I mean, if you think of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, as God is giving life to Adam. There's another uh, new school of thought, which was arising, it was a materialist idea, that actually we're just a heap of molecules, and somehow if you get the molecules and chemicals in the right order, somehow life will appear. And so Mary Shelley's book is partly a debate about those two opposing points of view, because one doctor suggested, as a sort of um, mediating device, that perhaps electricity is is the super added ingredient that gives life to heaps of molecules but she didn't actually say that it's just out there as an idea I and mean, it's a very strong theme of the exploration of science and nature but also with exploring the psyche to, to quite some extent really I think this was a period when people were very interested in the differences between people from different societies uh, because a lot of exploration was taking place. People were discovering new peoples, uh, well, new to Europeans all over the world. Uh, They were also very interested in a subject that's still fascinating, the boundary, if there is one, between animal intelligence and human intelligence. Uh, This was the period before Charles Darwin introduced his theory of evolution. But many people were already thinking along those lines and wondering if perhaps you could get orangutans to speak if you taught them properly. Um, It's also, I mean, you have this kind of warped nobility of the monster as uh, as he educates himself, or the creature rather, I should say, uh, as, as he educates himself. And it's also about learning about morality and those puzzles about thinking as to why people should um, uh, uh, behave in certain ways. uh, In a sense, he goes through a crash course in Western civilisation because he's he's outside 
the cottage of a blind man who's giving lessons in Plato and Locke and all the current philosophers who were important. So the creature learns about human history, the creature learns about philosophical ideas, and he learns from what he hears that people are cruel to each other, that people seek revenge, and he becomes corrupt like a human being, even though he starts out innocent. He also looks at epic ideas of Milton's Paradise Lost and things like that. So, I mean, he develops a soul quite quickly, doesn't he? He develops a soul, uh, he, but he's, he's sort of an external observer on the world of humanity. I think one way of thinking about it is that we, as people, have a very anthropocentric view of the universe, and that's why we're moving into the Anthropocene age, which we're busy destroying. One of the values of the creature's perspective is that he's not a human being. He's viewing the human world from outside, and it does not look very good from the outside. Yes, he's learning about people quite quickly, and how, how they actually are, as opposed to how they see themselves. Yes, and how, as opposed to how they would like to be. Um, Shelley was a very keen follower of John Locke, this, uh, this idea that we've got a sort of wax tablet inside our heads when we're born, a blank sheet of paper. And so her creature is born effectively with a blank sheet of paper and gradually the, the customs and habits and the sins of mankind are engraved onto the creature's brain. Her ideas were regarded as quite radical, weren't they, in, in the era that she lived in? Well, I think it was very radical to suggest that you could have create a living being without God's intervention. That was radical. And also, it was uh, shortly after the French Revolution, people were still very terrified of political ideas that, in our terms, veered towards the left. Uh, she was associated with a quite radical revolutionary family, with her, her father, William Godwin, her husband, Percy Shelley. So yes, it, when the book first came out, it was seen as a political tract. I mean, her education was unconventional and her family life was really turbulent, wasn't it? All kinds of incredible things happened to her. Oh, well, now, Mary Shelley herself. I mean, mm -hmm. by, the t by the time she wrote Frankenstein, she'd already had, I can't remember if it was two or three children who, who died. And she, I mean, she wrote, there was an enormous amount of her own personal emotional feelings invested in that. But when she writes about the abandonment uh, that the creature feels because Victor Frankenstein has left him on his own. I think she's she's writing from her own experience. Her mother died in childbirth, which wasn't her mother's fault, obviously, but as far as Mary Shelley was concerned, she'd never known a mother. It was as though she killed her own mother by being born. You found us. This is Cambridge 105. She famously spent a summer with Lord Byron and John William and Polidori near Geneva in Switzerland. They started off with German ghost stories um, yes. and then immediately set to work on their own, um, which shows a sort of um, a, 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 a flash of um, inspiration hit them all in some way, like a bolt. Well, a flash of inspiration <laughs> yeah. is a very romantic way of putting yeah. it, and of course, they were doing a lot to create their own public image. They, I mean, they were Byron was one of the romantic poets, and Percy Shelley was another. And I think that's how they like to regard themselves, and that's how they like to present themselves. And I'm sure they took, they relished this opportunity to tell ghost stories that were incredibly scary around the fire at night and 
Um, I'm sure they were drinking, they were probably doing some sort of recreational drugs as well. But Mary Shelley went home and her diary shows that she did a lot of reading. She was extremely well versed in the science of the time and that's sort of obvious from the book as as well as looking at her diary to, to see what what book she was consulting. She is absolutely up to speed with all the latest scientific controversies of the time. So it's a very topical book, as well as being a book that's applicable to every era in the future. There's a great line where she says, such was our domestic circle from which care and pain seemed forever banished. So you start in the safety zone mm. and then you move into this um, incredible adventure basically oh, yeah, which, no. is, which is um, I mean it seems to me that that's something that people wanted to do in, in that era was they wanted to break the mould of the life they were living and have a much more intense experience you know? I think that's uh, absolutely right they wanted um, something thrilling I mean it was a time when I don't know there's loads of pictures of volcanoes and it, it used to be that people search for perfection in a walled garden and peace and tranquility and beautiful serene views but by the end of the 18th century what they wanted to see was nature being violent nature being extreme and nature was definitely feminized so there's these since the time of aristotle there's these two famous polar opposites in the way that women are represented on the one hand women are nurturing and they have children and they're breastfeeding and nature has got rounded hills and is um, flowing rivers and is very tranquil but then there's this other view of nature and of women you've got these screaming harridans you've got you've got women who are witches and you've got nature which is full of waterfalls and um, earthquakes and volcanoes so there's these two very very distinct representations polar opposite representations of women and, and women and nature and that's exist those have existed for thousands of years and then you've got that kind of setting and then and then then there's this descent into the morbidity of the 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 the, the descent of the illness of elizabeth and then his mother's death and then you then then she introduces this crackpot excitement of the scientists at the university and the comment how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge so basically on the one hand there's this this, this desire to kind of go for it in, in, in life, in, in any direction. And then there's another thing, stepping back and saying, but, but what could happen, you know, if we did this, if we, if we go down this path? Well, that's yeah. also a warning that's in the book of Genesis, in the Bible. Yeah. I mean, when, when God says you can do absolutely anything you like, except eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and Eve tempts Adam into biting into that apple. So the idea that knowledge, possessing knowledge leads to great disasters is integral to our own civilization. Um, and then we get right down to it, which is this part of um, the gruesome account of acquiring human parts and the exercise, the whole exercise of creating the creature becomes like a disease in his mind. Yes, uh, I, th- I mean, I think in a way that's sort of less gruesome because you're, you're just sort of exploring the morbidity of what one particular person I, I think it's when the creature comes alive and is and then uh, Frankenstein is confronted by the reality of his own creation and then there's a whole problem of whether he should create a female partner for the creature the creature desperately wants a fellow human being he wants a woman to love and 
what the what Frankenstein does is create one, but then destroy it before before giving it life because because or giving her life because he, Frankenstein can't face the enormity of what it is that he's doing. There's an absolutely wonderful moment when the creature's one eye opens yeah. and scares the living daylights out of him and he runs off and hides because he's just absolutely frightened. It frightens the wits out of him completely that it's suddenly there. You know. <laughs> but I think, he I think um, she took that, I believe, from a contemporary medical account of a criminal called George Forster who was hanged and uh, the minute he was taken down from the gallows, some doctors put some electrodes on his head and there's a written description of how he slowly appeared to come back to life and that includes an account of one eye rolling open and leering at the spectators and they all rushed off because they were absolutely petrified. So that I think that's an excellent example of how she was totally au fait with all the contemporary scientific research that was going on and I think she just borrowed that event uh, from a, a um, he's kind of like inhabiting innocence, isn't he? And learning about life very quickly. Well, one other thing he learns is that appearances really matter, and that's obviously very relevant in today's racist societies. It was then. Uh, he uh, he gets on very well with the cottager, the philosopher in the cottage, because the philosopher is blind, and the philosopher can't see what the creature looks like. But the minute that anyone else sees him, the, uh, for example, the blind cottager's children, they are absolutely appalled because the creature looks so, so terrifying, even though he behaves in a very quiet, modest way. So that's a very elementary moral lesson, that you shouldn't judge by outward appearances. Human beings seek, seek company, mm. and Frankenstein has made a creature who also craves the company of someone similar. I mean, it's outrageous in, in there's the implication, of course, that if Frankenstein does create a, a woman for him, that they could have children. And then it really would be like AI, that they, they could um, reproduce and possibly take over the world. Yeah. Uh, Frankenstein fashions a wife, a woman, for the creature, uh, but then destroys her. He never actually brings her to life. So he, he says, I packed my chemical instruments and materials. I collected resolving to finish my labours in some obscure nook in the northern highlands of Scotland. And he has these forebodings of evil before he goes there, um, that he's about to do something truly wicked um, when he goes. And then, of course, um, the monster... Sorry, it's the creature. I keep calling him the monster. I know. The, cre the creature um, arrives on the scene to see how... Um, to see how well he's doing, mm. um, and then they have the uh, um, fight, and he basically he. The woman gets dismembered, uh -huh. and then then the creature disappears. Yes. Yeah, and, and then um, he has to pick up all the pieces off the floor mm. and put them in a basket, mm. and then row out to sea and mm. drop them in the sea with a, a dead weight attached to them. And when he gets back, he finds his friend dead on the beach, Henry Clavell, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, uh, and then there's this extraordinary sort of love-hate relationship between Frankenstein and, and the creature, that they're chasing each other, they're bound together. That's actually rather like the plot of one of the books by, by her father, by William Godwin. So she was very clearly, very strongly influenced by him. And they were quite, at that time, there were quite, quite a lot of, of 
of books that were being produced with these sort of double heroes who were sort of bound to each other in some sort of love-hate relationship. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde is a very good example. Um, um, That's a bit later. And then you have this terrible murder on the wedding night of his um, fiancée, Elizabeth. Hmm. Um, And and basically, by the time you get that that far through the tale, and you've had William, Justine and Henry murdered, and then... Hmm she's murdered as well Mm. um you get this feeling um that um the monsters um uh no but i think by then he is a monster and it's Mm, rather like it's rather like the stories of pandora's jar she's opened her jar and a host of evils is unleashed upon the earth. And I think that's the feeling that Mary Shelley's trying to convey at that stage of the book, is, is that this is just going to increase, everything is getting totally out of, out of control, that it has to be put an end to now, or, or, or otherwise there's going to be real disasters going to hit the earth. And then it's a, de- a desperate pursuit through Tartary and Russia and everywhere yes, else to, to in get this the love. love-hate relationship. They're totally tied to each other. They can't, Fra- Frankenstein just can't escape from the thing that he's created, however monstrous it's become. Um, and then the whole, the whole story comes round in an enormous circle and you mm. end up back with the... Uh, with the boat on the yes, ice cap. Yes, it's very, very um, clever. And that, that's wonderfully clever, isn't yeah. it? The way that she, she manages to manage all of the events um, towards <laughs> that point. Um, and, um, and then, um, you know, he, 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 he's finished telling his tale. And then the monster is there. Um, murders Frankenstein. Mm. Um, and then uh, um, enters into this confession of um, what has happened as well. Yeah. Um, and so you get that kind of outpouring as well from, from the creature that he's been so unfairly treated that, that that's been... It's terribly sad, really, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, the whole... Th- it uh, is terribly sad, and actually, throughout, my sympathies are with the creature, and I, I think that's what Mary Shelley in, intended. Mm. I mean, he, he, he is the one who really has been hard done by. Um, now, she died of um, a brain tumour in Belgravia at the end of her life. I don't know, but she di- it was quite a long while later that yeah. she died. Yeah. By yeah. then, she'd written a second version of the book, which is not nearly as powerful as the original edition, because she sanitised it. She made Victor Frankenstein f- uh, far more regretful. To, he, he had moral scruples. And the first edition is much more raw and bare. I think it's far more disturbing to read. Mm-hmm. So the 1818 edition is definitely the one that I would recommend. Patricia Parra, thank you very much indeed for um, talking to me about Frankenstein on this rainy afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> the lightning's flashing. <laughs> Finding all the pockets of emerging arts activity in Cambridge makes for a stimulating local pursuit, as I found out when invited to view Vendetten Gallery which is offering not only to invite people in hospitably to a sequence of exhibitions, workshops and events, but also to visit you with artwork that might match what you're looking for. Manager Hannah Mumby says she wants to take the elitism out of art and connect with people's heartfelt desires to own work that accurately reflects their own personalities and homes. Hannah, this um, gallery is absolutely wonderful. Um, Super colours, lots of um, uh, um, uh, hanging space. 
some really great art here. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to set it up. Um, yeah, so this is Fenditton Gallery. Myself and my mum, Lottie Atwood, who um, has been a Cambridge photographer for a long time, um, we run it together and we work with an independent curator who's based in Oxford, Amanda Game. And between the three of us, we have a sort of lots of different areas of, of expertise and, and interest and, and we bring the exhibitions together um, based on themes and they change throughout the year. Now you have some artists who you kind of specialise in, who are they? So in particular, my focus is on the emerging artists. Um, so I run a young collectors club for the gallery and um, I'm really keen in, in joining sort of new collectors and new artists in this sort of supporting each other as the sort of um, ecosystem of the art world kind of develops and and it's so important to do that but we also have a lot of very established artists that we work with and we have a really good relationship with Kip Gresham at the Print Studio Cambridge and he and and we work together on a few exhibitions and have done a couple recently where we show some of his sort of real beautiful collaborations that he's done with with artists who are not necessarily you know from a printmaking background they're sculptors or painters and they work with him and we're really lucky to have that relationship. Um, now you have um, quite an eclectic mix of artwork um, on the walls here which is which is very impressive um, to, to my eye, a great place to find art but you also have access to a lot of artists don't you so can you tell me a little bit about some of the exhibitions that are coming up over the next year basically? Yes yeah, so um, the exciting one that we've got coming up um, for the first one of autumn um, is a local artist David Eamond who um, he's been part of the architectural community in Cambridge for over 30 years Um, but alongside his kind of architectural work he has always created his pastels and and drawing and painting and charcoal these beautiful records of his travels and things like that Um, so the exhibition is um, kind of a look or a new perspective on this kind of lifetime of creating that he's had Um, and it will be very varied and very interesting and and he will be here um, the majority of the time that we're open to kind of talk to people who visit about the work and really give like kind of depth and insight into his creating. Uh, We work best and and we have worked with a number of um, private clients and we like to see the space that they have and, and by going into their homes you understand um, perhaps their styles and the, and the conversation that you have you quite quickly sort of develop an understanding of what they're interested in or, or something that might just resonate with them and particularly with my young collectors I encourage them when they are in the gallery we sort of have quite informal fun nights where you can have a glass of wine and, and I send them off to find a piece of work in the exhibition and I say, you don't have to like it, you might hate it, but let's just talk about why that is. And it's helping them to understand their own tastes as well, which, you know, is, is part of what I'm trying to do um, with the young collectors and encouraging um, new and aspiring collectors to really gain the confidence that actually walking to a, into a gallery isn't intimidating at all. It can be fun and it can be informal and the way in which the art world is seen mm. is um, very elitist mm. and we really don't want that to be the case. I mean, it's a very domestic setting here. We're in the home of, of an artist um, and the gallery is a sort of warm and welcoming place to, 
to look at work and see it in that setting. You're in the in Fenditon, um, but what you're offering is to actually take the art to them, aren't you? Uh, yes, yeah. we do. Yeah, so we do. I mean, we obviously have the space, which is in Fenditon, which might as well be the other side of the world to some people, mm. but it is only a 15-minute cycle from the centre of Cambridge, which is fantastic and Cambridge North is obviously recently opened and that's only a five minute bike ride or sort of 15 minute walk. But yes, there is um, the opportunity for us to work with clients to um, bring work to them and actually um, you know, show them, show them things in the space that they live in. And, and also it's to get comfortable with a piece of work as well. And, and seeing it on a gallery wall is of course gonna be different to seeing it in your own home. And so we, we're very comfortable working with people in that way. So we've got this David Eamon exhibition in September, which is great. Um, we're also going to be focusing on um, an exhibition in autumn, which is around the color yellow. Uh, we'll be releasing some brand new prints with Willard and Kip in autumn. And also I will be running a few events sort of focused towards the young collectors and I'm working with. And so there'll be lots of events and workshops coming up that, that people can get involved in as well. We always have really fun private views um, and uh, I would encourage anyone to go on our mailing list just to keep in touch about that because we send out invitations to private views. The film Oppenheimer, starring Cillian Murphy and a star-studded cast including Kenneth Branagh, Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. is currently running at cinemas and is well worth a viewing, telling the incredible story of outrageous risk to the entire planet in exploding a test H-bomb that could have killed us all by igniting the Earth's atmosphere and its subsequent progeny that flattened two Japanese cities, ending one war but now threatens us all again with Putin's reckless actions. Well, there's also a play on this subject, coming to the Arts Theatre by Cambridge alumni Catherine Moore and directed by Stephen Unwin, entitled Farm Hall, which picks up an intriguing strand of the story which happened close by in Godmanchester. A group of six German nuclear scientists are detained captives at Farm Hall for several months as the race for the bomb is taking place and drama ensues as the Secret Service bugs their many conversations for clues about what the Nazis know. The idea of writing a play only really kicked in when I read the Farm Hall transcripts and I just thought that they would make the most brilliant play. I kind of just wanted to do it first, so uh, did, or kind of get it done. Did, did you it, yeah. stumble upon those and where did you find them? Well, I was at Georgetown and the professor of the class, nuclear scientist and descent, who is Professor Ales Catherine Alesco, who is brilliant, mm -hmm. um, she was kind of reeling off a list of possible essay topics that we could write an extended essay about and she mentioned the existence of these transcripts just super offhand and I thought they sounded really interesting so I went to the Georgetown library that evening took them out and read them all in an evening and yeah they, they were just really 
really interesting. I didn't end up writing an essay about them, but I did, yeah, start writing the play kind of there and then. Fantastic. So um, Farm Hall's coming to the Arts Theatre in Cambridge in early September. Um, what's the synopsis of the piece? At the near the end of the Second World War, the British Secret Service went around Germany and collected all the German nuclear scientists that they thought had been working on the German atomic bomb project, and they stowed them in this country house in Cambridgeshire, Farm Hall, and they bugged the house and they listened into all their conversations, basically trying to figure out how far along Germany had got with building an atomic bomb. The scientists were there for about seven months. Yeah, so they, they, we had these transcripts and they were eventually declassified in the 1990s. Um, and the play Farm Hall is inspired by those transcripts and the conversations that the German scientists had in Farm Hall. And were they abduct, abducting these German scientists? How did, how did they get hold of them to detain them? What did they do? Basically, they just kind of went up and knocked on their front doors and said, sorry, you have to, you have you have to come, come with us. us. Yeah, um, yeah. I think for the most part, I mean, they obviously didn't feel great about having to leave their families and being taken to God knows where, but they did kind of think, oh, thank God, at least maybe the Russians can't get to us. At least that's how they felt at the time. Mm. That was their overriding fear, I suppose, that the Russians would pick them up, so they would rather that it was the Allies, yeah. So as a, as a historian, there's definitely this kind of vogue in history at the moment, which I think is, is generally correct, that individuals can't really shape history, that it's mostly about these like massive social and economic forces and things like that. For a long time, they basically get to decide what the truth is. They get to decide what history is. They get to decide whether or not they chose to build a bomb or not because mm. kind of everyone higher up than them is dead. All the, They destroyed all their a lot of their work. All the kind of physical information or documentation isn't there. So the idea that this group of original, actually 10 men in a room could get to decide what history was. Originally at Farm Hall, there were actually 10 scientists mm. held there, but I reduced it down to six because I just thought that was more manageable. Mm. I thought 10 was quite a lot of people for the audience to get to know. Um, so it's six scientists, and I tried to cover kind of include scientists that had a range of different ages so some are in their 60s some are in their kind of 20s early 30s a range of kind of political affiliations so some were card-carrying Nazis and some were completely anti-Nazi some came from very aristocratic backgrounds some from far different more kind of more humble beginnings when you get it from the transcripts how funny they are when they're bored hmm. like they're just really struggling to come up with things to do and that took up kind of took on particular resonance after lockdown because obviously suddenly we were all in our houses stuck with nothing to do um hmm. but these are people for whom einstein and other scientists like that are you know incredibly important they're like gods to them and einstein was a jewish scientist so the idea that you could be a nazi nuclear physicist whilst also needing to believe in what the nazis call jewish physics is just it's it's very interesting how they managed to kind of um, hold those two contrary beliefs in their heads, that Einstein can be right and Hitler can be right, because mm. how can they both be? Because I didn't want to have to deal with, oh, who's going to speak in German and who's going to speak in an accent or anything like that. We never actually meet any of the British spies listening in on them, but the Germans, the scientists do reference them a lot, especially their their army, their handler, who was called Major Rittner, so they reference him, but we never actually meet him. But, I mean, the key moment at Farm Hall happened, you know, and basically quite, kind of early on in their time there, which is when the German scientists find out that the Americans have successfully built an atomic bomb and have used it against Japan. Um, and that's the kind of, that's the halfway point in the play. And that's when their entire sense of themselves and their entire worldview just completely crumbles because, spoiler alert, the Germans didn't build a bomb, mm. but they 
were thoroughly convinced of their scientific superiority. Mm. They thought if they couldn't do it, then no one else can. So it's completely mind-blowing to them that the Americans have got there first. Mm. And that is all the kind of nice, kind of peaceful getting on that has happened in the first half. The half of the play is kind of completely shattered by the revelation that the Americans have built upon, and they will begin to turn on each other, basically. Um, uh, Catherine Moore, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. It's been most interesting. It's no secret that there are 600 artists, craftspeople and designer makers working in Cambridge and a good number of them open their studio doors to the public through July. What intrigues me is the infinite variety of what's on offer each year and the fascinating stories creative people tell about what makes them tick as people expressing their talents. The studios all have a wondrous fingerprint of individual interest and some of the artefacts are very rare indeed. I dropped into a venue on the river near the Green Dragon pub and met painter Denise Spaulding, potter Joy Voisey and jewellery maker Josh Stelling as they entertained and exhibited. Denise, we're at a very um, salubrious setting here, um, down by the river in Cambridge, quite near the Green Dragon pub. Um, who's here and what's going on here? Well, there are three artists here. One, ceramic, Joy Voisey, and she owns the property and the beautiful garden and she works in her studio here creating her beautiful work. Joss is the jeweler, she works in silver and she's got her work on display in um, greenhouse and I'm the painter would do two-dimensional two work. It's not only painting. Um, there's a wonderful studio here where they're obviously doing pottery um, and there's a great um, gazebo tent as well with lots of pottery and artworks in and everything from cards to wonderfully colourful paintings and things and lots of people browsing around um, having a good time here. Now tell me about your art because I see that you've got some absolutely wonderful images from South Africa here which is mm -hmm. a place I'm quite familiar with. Um, what happened in South Africa? Did you, did you travel around and paint quite a bit? Or? Well, I taught art for many years in high school. Um, and yes, I have recently, on trips back, seen more of South Africa than when I lived there, <laughs> <laughs> being acting tourist. Yeah, no, um, the, it's vast, so there's a lot of different inspiration. Now, now th this painting here is, is absolutely wonderful. It's, 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 um, it's from an above view uh, of um, fish in the water, but it's incredibly colourful and swirly. So um, how did that come about, that, that painting? Well, it's if you look at goldfish or carp feeding, mm. they do swim like that. Mm. They go around and, and jump and get into a frenzy, don't they? Well, you seem to have captured the nature of fish in a very abstract way. You know, you've got more than just the, the image of a fish you've got, because it's in relief part of it as well, um, the, the painting, the paint comes out of the, the, the canvas. Mm. And then you've got that kind of um, a, a texture of a fish's body, you know, completely in it. That, that must have been quite difficult to, to capture that. Well, it takes many layers. Mm -hmm. That's that's a secret. Uh, you, you lay down and you have to wait, but because it's painted in oil, you wait a while and contemplate and then carry on. So, yeah. Lovely. And, and these landscapes you've got, um, is this Impala here? Yes, yeah, yes. Impala, yeah. yeah. 
Um, absolutely wonderful images of landscapes in South Africa, which are particularly... I mean, South Africa is a tremendously dramatic place in terms of um, landscapes, isn't it? Because mm. you have all these yeah. um, mountains and plains and, and, mm. and wonderful seascapes. And all, also the changing colours um, by the ocean are quite incredible, aren't they, for mm, an artist to Depending paint. on the weather uh, and yeah. the light, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you get different palettes. And then we've got lots of images of Cambridge as well. Uh, there's a lovely one with a bicycle and a swan in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, was that a recent one? Yeah, quite. Well, it's emerged again over many years. <laughs> it's changed. Um, it's springtime by the river. Mm. Yeah, the swan with their signets and the spring greens. Um, it's a typical mm. vision of the river on in springtime. Do you Lime green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you seem to have discovered a very nice spot here somewhere. Um, is this of special significance? Um, well, that's also near the river. Mm-hmm. It's it's down in Logan's Meadow. Mm-hmm. And as you approach the woods at Logan, Logan's Wood. Joy, you've got a fantastic pottery studio here. Um, tell me a little bit about how this all came about. All right, my workshop, well, we've been here 45 years. And when we came, they were just kind of three walls, no roof, no front, and gradually built it up. Mm. And because I've been teaching pottery in schools, mm. I did evening classes and managed to get uh, pots that came out from different countries that I visited. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I mean, I've noticed, obviously, in Cambridge, lots of people have these wonderful places in their garden, and it's great to discover them. Tell me about some of these, these um, um, works that you've got along the back wall here, because they look particularly interesting. Well, they are ceremonial pots. I worked in Nigeria as a volunteer for three years. We have pots from Benin, mm. from Enugu, Mina, the, the whole length and breadth of Nigeria. Uh, most of them are c- ceremonial pots or water pots, like the big, big one that we have just here, and that keeps their water cool in the villages because if you put water into a, a pail or a bucket, it will warm up, but it keeps cool if it's in an unglazed pot. Um, they're, they're actually not something that I've ever seen before in terms of the, the patent and design of them because mm. those are particularly remarkable um, examples of African pottery, aren't they? Because well, that is because we're, we're mostly made by women that you're looking at here, mm. and they don't put their names on them, but their pattern will tell them whose pot is which. So when they go and get, pick them up out of the kiln they've been fired in, there's no, um, no arguing because they know their own pattern that they've put on their pots. So that's why it's such a varied... Mm. Um, you, you seem to have a very good collection of very rustic teapots as well. <laughs> um, do you use those at all? No, I don't. No, I only have a tea bag and a cup of tea. <laughs> yes. Uh, you've got a wonderful potter's wheel here, and I, I once tried a potter's wheel in France, um, and it was quite different to get the. Uh, it's quite difficult to get the uh, the knack of how to do it when you put a blob of of clay um, yeah. on it. Um, I expect you must be uh, an absolute expert at this. Well, no. Uh, I'm not an expert, but I do understand how difficult it is. And when people came in an evening class and they wanted to go on the wheel, they realised you can't even centre the piece of clay to start mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. So it does take a lot of um, lot of practice and a lot of lot of hours and a lot of hardship and a lot of waste clay that you have to reclaim. F- work it from there. Yeah. How important is open studios to you as an artist to let people into your world and let them see what's here? 
very important because it's lovely to talk to people and it's lovely to give them the impetus to perhaps go to evening classes or the children to work, you know, get, join the ceramic class or something, uh, the, the classes that may be held after school. Yeah, very important. I'm Joss Studding. I am a silver fern jewellery, so I make jewellery out of silver with a bit of gold, usually in the shape of flowers and plants. You're tinkering away with lots of um, wonderful pieces of jewellery. Tell me what you're doing here. I'm making some bodier leaves, which is the leaf, the tree that Buddha stood under. Uh, so it's out of silver with a little peridot drop that goes with it and there'll be a pair of earrings when I finish it. Uh, what's distinctive about your style of jewellery? Do you, do you Very much based on nature on the coast. Mm. I spend a, a lot of the time walking a dog on the coast, so things are very illustrative, but also a lot of the pieces move, so it's got kinetic energy to go with them. Yeah. Is, um, uh, what's your background as an artist? Do, have you done kinetic art? And things like that? Uh, I trained as a photographer mm. and I still work in the photo industry. I'm a photographic mm. curator at the Museum of Aachen, uh, archaeology and anthropology, seeing things and representing things. But now I do it in silver or so. I like really from the photography. Uh, you make bracelets as well? I do. Uh, because I work at Museum of Archaeology, uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to see some of the archaeological collections so I make a lot of the Iron Age talks or medieval pieces that we have in the museum represent those. So I mean actually that museum is a wonderful source of um, inspiration for creativity isn't it because you get that you know there's so many wonderful exhibits there um, that you you have a a wealth of things to sort of spark off ideas and things like that. I do Um, this is where you will see that each piece has well you can't see on the radio obviously uh, that each piece has a, a tag that goes with it and that's very much based on the museum idea of everything having a story that goes with it. So uh, each each piece of jewellery has a lot of provenance that goes with it, yes. Yes. Uh, that's wonderful. A, lo- and a photo of something related and a little story that goes with it, yeah. yeah. They're, they're very um, uh, sophisticated in terms of the designs <laughs> of them. Um, I mean, how on earth do you do, you do that? How do, you, how do you create that? I actually photocopy the leaf to get the actual shape of it mm. and then use that as a template, paper template mm. to cut out the silver. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what's it like working with silver? Because it's quite a soft metal, isn't it? It is. Um, it's very easy to work with. Uh, there is a, a lot of skill, obviously, but it's a very easy to work with, very malleable, so, and you can shape it to whatever you would like and use enamel to get different colours, which is always fun. And that's all for this edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup. I hope you've enjoyed listening in on Cambridge 105 and we'll tune in again soon. If you have a creative story to tell, get in touch via our website. Wishing you a great summer. I'm Simon Burton and I'll be back soon.